0: So we come this morning in the book of Luke to a quite familiar passage, a passage that perhaps we would just kind of breeze over if you were reading through the book of Luke. But it's an essential passage, and the very fact that it seems, as it were, perhaps, mundane, makes what it is all that more profound, Jesus is going to call his 12 apostles this morning. The passage that we're going to be looking at, Luke 6, 12 to 16. It occurs in a particular historical context. There is a certain thing going on in the life and ministry of Jesus. And we need to get that to understand the call of the 12 When we think about the life of Jesus, it's easy to kind of abbreviate it, to kind of just cram it all into one quick little thing and think, well, okay, so Jesus gets baptized by John, starts his public ministry, immediately goes into the wilderness. He's tempted of the devil for 40 days. He comes back. He goes to Nazareth. He's rejected by them. He goes into Galilee. And while he's there, he calls the 12, and off he goes. We know that his ministry lasts about three and a half years, public, and we might tend to think that the disciples were called early on in those three and a half years and before the whole nation actually knew who Jesus was or before there was any real opposition or that they had a little bit of breathing room anyway. To, to uh, All of that is wrong. Everything I just said to you is pretty much wrong as far as chronology goes. All of those events occur, but that's not exactly how that all went. What actually happened was Jesus did get baptized, and he did go into the wilderness, and he was there for 40 days. But when he came out of the wilderness, he went back to John the Baptist. And when he was there with John the Baptist, this is the moment where John the Baptist points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are there at that moment, and Jesus, with them, goes back into Galilee, the Galilean region for a little bit. And Philip and, and Nathaniel and some others are also called as disciples. And then Jesus leaves the Galilean region and goes up for the Passover. Understand that lots of people went up for the Passover. It was a very common thing. The Passover was an annual feast. And you would every year if you could, leave wherever you were and make your way to Jerusalem for the Passover. So when Jesus goes up for this first Passover, and this, by the way, is one of the challenges to harmonizing the Gospels, but the Gospel of John lays out for us like this whole section that the other Gospels just, I don't mention it, but John does in some detail. This is where Jesus goes up for the first Passover, his first public Passover, his first cleansing of the temple, he does it twice, and this is where he talks to Nicodemus, and when he goes back, then he will bring his disciples with him, and they'll go through Samaria and talk to the woman at the well. When he gets back up into the Galilean region, his disciples will basically go back. Peter will go back to fishing, so old Andrew, James, and John. They, they follow him down to Jerusalem on this initial journey because, well, they were going to go to Jerusalem anyway. It's the Passover. Everybody wants to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're with Jesus, and they believe in Jesus. John has pointed to him. They have repented of their sin. They've gone the baptism of John. And they go with Jesus up to Jerusalem. But the fact is that Jesus goes back into the Galilean region and is there for a while before he finally makes his way to Nazareth to speak into his own synagogue. And you'll remember when he does that, apparently at least as far as we can tell, there are no disciples with him because they're going to so, so violently reject him that they want to literally throw him off a cliff and kill him. There's no record that any of the disciples are in any way threatened by that, so he's probably went back to his hometown by himself. So he leaves them, we know he walks away from that, and goes back down into the Galilean region. And while he's down there, he will again Remember, get on the boat. Remember, we just went over the passage. He gets on the boat, he's preaching. This is the boat of Peter with Andrew. James and John are probably on the shore. And when he's done preaching, he says, okay, let's put out and let's let's catch some fish. And Peter's like, you know, I'm not going to re-preach that whole sermon. Then he says to him, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. Second call of Peter. Andrew, James, and John. At that point, he leaves them, he goes to Matthew, remember? When he, when he talks to Matthew, and Matthew follows him, and the tax collectors, he has the, big, uh, he has the big celebration for them, and all of his tax-collecting friends come. Then Jesus, at this point, goes out and takes his disciples, who are now following him. But remember, lots of people are following him. Everywhere Jesus goes, people are following him. He does lots of miracles. He, he takes care of people's needs. He does fantastic teaching. Jesus has been doing this for about a year now. Between the baptism of John and going to Jerusalem and coming back into the Galilean region, Going out, he's been at this a while. In fact, we have just looked at the passages where, remember, the guy is, is let down in, and to be healed, and Jesus forgives his sins. And remember the the scribes and the Pharisees who have come from Jerusalem are watching this and say, who is this guy who forgives sins? And remember, then he goes into the the fields and they're eating the grain and rubbing it in their hands and like, hey, that's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And then shortly after that, he's in a synagogue and the guy with the withered hand. All of these events have occurred. So by the time Jesus does the thing with the withered hand, you will recall that at that event... There is really not much of a discussion here anymore about whether they're going to repent and accept Jesus. They're not. These guys are ready to kill him. They are so mad at him. When Jesus heals the guy with a withered hand, they go out and they take counsel with one another. What can we do to destroy him? They're just filled with anger. Mark says that they went out and conspired with the Herodians, who, Herod. I'm Herod, right? They don't like Herod. They hate Herod. Herod is the guy who is the Roman, remember, he's the Idommean. He's the guy who the Romans have put in charge of the nation. They despise the guy, but they meet with the, with the Herodians to figure out what we can do to kill Jesus. So, here's Jesus healing people's sicknesses, preaching to them, giving them the truth, speaking, Uh, he's going around doing all of these great and good works and all they do is hate him. If they were ever going to repent, by the way, the moment to repent was back at the preaching of John. By the way, at this point, John the Baptist is still out there. He's still preaching. Chances are fairly good that when Jesus left to go to the Passover, that first Passover, well, you go down the Jordan River Valley. Where's John? He's in the Jordan River Valley preaching. He's probably preaching to the people who are on their way to that Passover. Getting a crowd. That's what John's doing. They listen. People listen to John. Some people get baptized by John, but there's no nationwide repentance. There's there's no national repentance. Jesus is continuing the message of John. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How's that going? Is there nationwide repentance? Of course there's not. There is no nationwide repentance. In fact, the very religious leaders who should be repenting are now coming after him for the grain thing and the forgiveness of sin thing and the healing of the guy's withered hand. Di- they are now ready to destroy him. So at this time, verse 12, picking up where we're at here, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. At this time, what does Jesus do? Well, he goes off to the mountain to pray. And he spends the whole night praying to God. Honestly, who in the world? could possibly blame him. I mean, just kind of use a little imagination as to how this discussion with the Father goes. Uh, I mean, I knew I came here to be a faithful high priest who would know all of the infirmities of mankind. I knew what I was getting into, but, wow, did you know. These folks hate me and all I'm doing is good things. I mean, imagine the prayer that Jesus is having. Jesus is going to spend the whole night in prayer and the next verse, by the way, what he's going to do is he's going to call the 12 and he's praying for them. They are not called into a peaceful, little bit of a lull situation. He's going to call them under fire. He's going to call them when there is no hope of national repentance. That that door has already closed. That moment has already passed. If there was going to be national repentance, it was going to occur under the preaching of John, and shortly John will be arrested, and that will be the end of John's ministry. And there has not been national repentance. There has barely been any repentance. Some, not that much. Jesus is carrying out the same mission, and again... No real repentance. He's got some folks following him around, but it's not like he will stand up and say, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the mighty works that have been done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Not you guys. Oh, you all want to see the miracles. You all want to get fed. You all want to uh, whatever, but there's no repentance. No one's repenting here or hardly anyone. So Jesus is in a difficult place. He's been at this for a while now. No positive response. Now, if Jesus were an American, and he were in America, uh, our society, right, well, what should you do? I mean, you're trying to start this business, right? And it's not going well. So we'd have lots of suggestions for Jesus. I mean, we, we could come up with all kinds of things. We're Americans. We're very pragmatic. That's one of the things that just makes America, America. Oh, whatever, whatever works. You got to do whatever works. Tell you what, Jesus, you got to soften the message a little bit. I mean, you're really going after those Pharisees pretty hard. You need to you just back off on that some. Stop, stop going after them quite so hard. Uh, see if you can make some kind of a deal with them. Make some kind of an arrangement or, or something. Maybe you need to develop the Jesus brand. You know, come up with a logo and stick it everywhere on everything so that when people see it, they they feel comfortable with you and feel like they already know you. And, you know, just, that's how we do it. That's how we sell sneakers, you know? Come on. Um, And if you don't think people don't make those suggestions for churches, oh, oh, yes, yes, they do. Here's what you should do, Jesus. Maybe you should just start your own school. I mean, forget the whole nation. Just, just kind of go with the school. Start the school of Jesus. That was a common thing to do. That was known well in their society. Uh, Socrates, Plato, the Epicureans, the Stoics, lots of people. Remember, Paul sits at the feet of Gamaliel. It's not uncalled or unheard of for lots of master-teacher relationships where you just start your school, the school of Jesus, and stop fighting these folks. Stop going after them. Just just get together your own crew of folk and, and just see what you can do there. Jesus doesn't. He doesn't start a school. Maybe, Jesus, what you should do is what the ASEANs do. I mean, look at them. They all moved down by the Dead Sea, which is hard to imagine now just how remote that was. I mean, wilderness? That is the wilderness of the wilderness. You could barely survive down there. You had to walk. 110 in the shade during the day. Hotter than Del Rio, even. Often. Go down there. Just kind of leave this nation. Leave everybody. Just just go start your own little monastery. Just go start this thing out there with your little group of disciples that you've got and just, just... Don't worry about it. Did Jesus do that? No. He could have, right? He could have started a school. He could have done like the Essenes. He could have sided with the zealots. Now, the zealots, they had an agenda. Let's get rid of these Romans. If we could just get the Romans out of our midst, then we're going to be all set. Now, Jesus calls a zealot, right? Simon the zealot. Simon is of this political party who their entire goal is to get rid of the Romans. Maybe Jesus had the authority. He's actually going to say to Pilate, you know, what, you don't think I couldn't with just a word call 12 legions of angels? And historically, a Roman legion during the time in which Jesus lived was, give or take, about 5,000 guys. That's one legion. So 12 legions is 60,000 angels. With 60,000 angels, Jesus could have conquered Rome. He could have conquered whatever. He could have conquered the whole world. Could have done that. He could have just enforced his rule on them. Could have just said, okay, I'm, I'm the king. I'm in charge. I'm going to call my 12 legions of angels. You are all going to submit or I'll just kill you all. You, you bow the knee or we'll just, we'll just do you in. Does Jesus do that? He can do that. Does he? No. No, that is not what Jesus does. Jesus knows where all the treasures of the earth are. He could provide his followers with a hoard of treasure that would finance them to today. He could have given them unlimited wealth. Does he do that? No, no, that's not what he does. He's here praying to the Father, And he's not praying for military victory. He's not praying for great fortune or wealth. He could have just said, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just start my own religion. Let's just, Judaism, you guys, you're done. You guys have so warped and I'm going to start a whole new religion. Now you might actually think that's what he did, but that's not what he did at all. The new covenant is nothing more than the complete fulfillment of the old covenant. He didn't start a new religion. In fact, Jesus lived under the law and kept the law to every jot and tittle. Jesus completely fulfilled the law of Moses, which is why, having completely fulfilled it, he could then move on to the new covenant. Because we fulfilled the old covenant and it served its purpose. He didn't, he didn't get rid of it. He fulfilled it. Completely different thing. Jesus could have. He didn't do that either. But he didn't start his own religion, by the way. He didn't. He didn't just walk away from Judaism. He fulfilled Judaism. But he could have. Could have just started any religion. He could have said, "All right, here's what I'm going to do. Okay, all you guys who are my followers, get the torches and pitchforks. Let's go up there. Let's get rid of the corrupt leadership." who are in charge of the temple, in charge of all of that stuff. Let's just get rid of them. Forget the Romans. We're not, we're not going to go after the Romans. They'll just stand back anyway. They're going to be happy to watch us get rid of all these people. Let's just get rid of the high priest. Get rid of, get rid of them all. Let's just lead a rebellion of our own people. Could have done that. I, do you think his disciples wouldn't have followed him? In a second, they would have followed him. Of course they would have. They hated this corrupt priesthood that was going on up there. When Jesus cleaned out the money changers, no one stood up for their defense. They all knew these guys were a bunch of crooks. Did Jesus do that? No. Nope. Did Jesus decide to appoint himself as the leader of a new revival? Let's get a revival going here. Let me just kind of, all right, I'm going to step in. And for a while, like all of the judges under the old back in the Old Testament. I'll just become the next judge of Israel. And I'm going to enforce my laws, and I'm going to, we're going to bring people in here, and I'm going to make them do. Now, if you look at your Old Testament, if you read like the book of Judges, it's like with Joshua. What did Israel do? Well, under Joshua, they were faithful. And under all those folks who were under Joshua, they were faithful. And as soon as those two generations died away, they went right after serving Baal. They just just walked away. And so God would raise up a judge and they would be faithful while the judge was there and then they would walk away. And, and if you just watch, the cycle just goes over and over and over. You know, if Jesus had said, all right, I'm going to do a revival. Okay, how long would that have lasted? Well, while Jesus was here. And then what? And then have just gone right back to it. All of these things Jesus could have done. He could have started a school. He didn't. He could have built an army. He didn't. He could have called a heavenly army. He didn't do that either. He could have amassed a huge treasure to keep his whole thing financed. He didn't do that. He could have abandoned Judaism and he didn't do that. He could have put together a revival and he didn't do that. So what did he do? What did he do? Here you are, you're Jesus, you have everything at your disposal. He knows he's only got two and a half years to accomplish the foundation of an entirely new religious structure called the church. What does he do? Well, he spends all night praying to his father. And he gets the next day, prays all night, walks out, looks out over his disciples, who he probably has hundreds of them. I mean, it's not nobody. And he chooses out 12 men and says... You guys, whatever it is you've been doing, you're going to stop doing that, and you're going to come, and you are going to follow me full time. You are going to spend, he doesn't tell them, but you're going to spend the next two and a half years living, eating, breathing with Jesus. You're going to be completely immersed in the teaching and in the life of Jesus for the next two and a half years. That is discipleship. Just stop and think about how strategic that choice was on the part of Jesus. Don't allow the, well, yeah, of it blind you to just how effective this is. If you want to disciple someone, you need to spend time with them. You need to talk about life with them. Jesus lives with these guys for two and a half years. They just go through life with Jesus. And every event that comes up, and every issue that comes up, and whatever comes to pass, Jesus explains to them how to think God's thoughts about what's going on in front of them. How to think like Jesus. This is the whole point of discipleship. It's simple and yet profound. If you want to disciple people, if you want to disciple your children, well, here's what you do live a godly life in front of them. And as every issue arises, as life goes on in front of you and them, talk to them about God's perspective on the issues of the day. That, of course, requires that you actually have God's perspective on the issues of the day. So if you don't have them, you need to be disciples. This is the Christian life. This is what God is doing. This is what Jesus told his disciples to do. When the Great Commission comes along, what he greatly commissions them to do is to go into all the world and make disciples. Doing what? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teach them so that they will learn the thinking of Jesus. This is what discipleship is. If you want to be discipled, you need to find someone who knows what the thinking of Jesus is and you need to talk to them. I strongly urge you to open your Bible and to read through the Gospels. You can get through the Gospels, by the way, in a You can read them like four times in a year, give or take, at a chapter a day. Just read through them a chapter a day. You'll have made it through the Gospels four times by the time a year is over. You will actually have a pretty good handle on, more or less, on who Jesus is. You will have at least read what Jesus said and what he did and how it worked so that you don't end up with this view of Jesus, which I'm afraid we often sometimes do. We we have this idea that Jesus is some kind of I don't know what non-confrontational, mamby-pamby, milk-toast guy who just kind of loves everybody and isn't it all wonderful and I just forgive everybody of whatever they do and, and it's all fine and we just let everything go because after all, we love folks. Okay. You actually sit and read the Gospels and read them carefully. Jesus is anything but that guy. He's not that guy. You know, they crucify him for a reason. They hate him. And the reason they hate him is because he confronts them with the word of God and what it says. And they claim to be the representatives of God. They're not. Their view of the law of God is wrong. And he tells them they're wrong. And he shows them they're wrong. And he performs miracles before their very eyes to show them that he has the power of God and has the right to tell them they're wrong. He calls out their hypocrisy. And it's in this moment when they hate him and when they're ready to go, who knows, they just haven't figured out yet what they're going to do to him, but oh, they sure want to do something to him. It is during this moment that Jesus calls the 12. Who does he call? I just take a moment and and just think about who Jesus actually calls. because, Because you think, well, He's got the whole world to pick from here. Surely he's going to pick the, the exceptional folks, those folks who are, who are enormously talented, who no matter what they do, they would succeed at it. They, would, they just exude intellect and talent and charisma and those folks who everyone in the world would look at them and go, well, yeah, my, if I had to follow someone, that, that would be a person I would follow. Is that who Jesus picks? Look at who he picks. They're just all regular folks. Just regular folks. They're just common, everyday folks. Those are the 12 people Jesus picks. He He doesn't even pick anybody from the priesthood. He doesn't pick anybody as a national leader. The one guy who eventually will get called, who might fit that description somewhat, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, of course, immediately upon him getting the call of Jesus is driven out of all of that stuff. Jesus just picks 12 ordinary guys and says, come with me. And by the time you're done living with Jesus and by the time you're done watching Jesus and thinking like Jesus and paying attention to who Jesus is and and what he has to say, by the time you're done doing that for two and a half years, you will not be ordinary anymore. You will, in fact, be extraordinary. You will be a completely transformed person. You will be a different person. You will be a person who no longer thinks like you thought and who no longer sees the world like you saw it before. And I think Jesus deliberately picks 12 unexceptional, ordinary, normal guys to just let it be known to everyone that it doesn't matter who you are. If you have relationships, if you get together and you talk about who Jesus is and how Jesus thinks and what Jesus' view is on the world, you will be transformed. Relationships. Jesus didn't start a school so he could just stand up and lecture them. He lived with them. And he didn't drag them off into some monastery like the ASEANs out in the middle of nowhere. He brought them right into the culture and the day and the people with which everyone was living in that society. And he interacted with the leaders and the common folks in all of the various towns. Why? Because real life. This is real life. Jesus transformed them in the midst of real life relationships are what make the difference you cannot be the disciple you need to be if you don't have relationships with other believers you just can't do it can't be done Jesus couldn't do it I mean stop and think about that for a second Jesus couldn't do it or didn't do it I mean obviously Jesus can do anything But what he chose to do with his 12 disciples was to actually live with them for two and a half years because that's what it was going to take to transform them. It wasn't optional. Relationships aren't optional. If you want to grow, if you you have this relationship with Jesus and you have this heart in which you're like, oh, Lord, I so want to be a godly person. I so want to be a person who pleases you and does what you want and who is growing and thriving in my faith and in my my belief and in my relationship with you. Well, I have news for you. You must have relationships with other believers to fulfill that. It, It can't be done without it. You have to have relationships with other believers. This is what Jesus did. Don't miss what Jesus did. He took 12 guys and lived with them. And it transformed them. The church is the place to make those friendships. We are the body of Christ. We are here, and we are here so that we can get to know one another. God calls all of us, every single person seated in this room, and I don't want to make too many assumptions, but I'm going to assume that at least most of us, there's no one I don't know, we all believe that Jesus died for us, that, that the Spirit of God indwells us, that we are part of the body of Christ, that we were saved not by our own works, but by the work of Christ on our behalf. And we are his body and we have a spiritual gift. And we, if we're going to do that and be part of that, we must take care of one another. That's why we're here. That's, that's what we're doing, trying to fulfill the great commission, which is to disciple each other. This is why we do what we do. This is why we have Sunday school. This is why we have Sunday night. This is why I have Sunday morning. This is why we have Wednesday night. This is why, in the fall anyway, we're going to have a small group. All of these things, all of these events come to pass so that we can become the believer God wants us to be. And that happens through relationships. You have to get together with people who think like Jesus. And you have to talk to them. Until you become a person who thinks like Jesus. Jesus. It's a lifetime pursuit, by the way. You never really arrive until we get to heaven and then we see him as he is and then we'll really be transformed. But in this life, now, we need to get together with folks who think like Jesus. This is what Jesus did. This was his strategy. He said, all right, I'm going to hang around with you guys. And I'm going to talk to you. And, and if you just look at their lives, I mean, just, just read the Gospels and watch. Peter's a disaster. The guy is a total disaster. Every time he opens his mouth, he, he sticks his foot in it. He, he's, he's always turning around saying something he shouldn't be saying. They're, they're literally walking down the road having an argument about which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, seriously. Okay, these are the guys Jesus picked? Yes, yes. Wait, did Jesus actually pick Judas? Yes. Yes, he did. Jesus picks people from every walk of life. Jesus picks them. Here's another interesting thing. If you actually go down through the list um, of the 12, which it gives us here in the passage, the 12, whenever they're listed, they're always listed in three groups of four each. Peter, by the way, always leads the list. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, sometimes it's, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. So it's not, that order is, but what is always the same is Peter is always first. And then you get to the next group, and we'll get to those in just a second, and then the last group. And the last person in the last group, invariably, is Judas. Until Acts, when they list him in Acts. Of course, he's Matthias, because Judas isn't there anymore. So in the first group, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, you look at these guys, they're fishermen, they're brothers, there's two sets of brothers. I don't know about you, but James and John, my kind of guys, right? They're the sons of thunder, right? You just, you just think, wouldn't it be fun to hang around with these guys? I don't know about you, I, I just love to hang, hang around with them. Sons of thunder, let's call down fire on them, yeah. Uh, but Jesus actually takes them and and stop and read the Gospel of John, read First, Second, and Third John. These are written by the beloved John the Apostle. You know, by the time he gets around to writing that stuff, I don't think he's quite the son of thunder that he used to be. He's actually my dearly beloved. This is the heart of God. Listen, Jesus softens this guy. Jesus transforms every single one of them. Look at Peter. By the time Peter writes First and Second Peter, you read it, it's the same thing. He's just this, he's, he still has conviction. It's not that. But he's clearly a guy who knows the love of Christ. We get to the second group, which is Philip, uh, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, Matthew, and Thomas. We know a little bit more about these guys. Philip, by the way, is not Philip the Evangelist. He's a different Philip. Um, but we don't really know that much about them, these, these four guys. They, they pop up here and there. Matthew wrote the gospel, but he doesn't really say anything. I mean, he writes his gospel, that speaks for itself, but actual conversation doesn't really pipe up much. In fact, he doesn't. We have no record of anything he ever said. Um, Bartholomew, uh, Philip says a little bit, not much. Bartholomew says less. Um, Thomas, now we all know Thomas, right? He's the guy who doubted, right? Doubting Thomas. So if we add, he's probably the more familiar of those four guys. Okay, the next group of four, well, it's James, the son of Alphaeus. What, what do you know about him? Okay, you know as much as everybody else does. There you go. You're like, I don't know a thing about him. Well, don't feel bad. No one knows anything about him. He, he was the son of Alphaeus. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, okay, there you go. Uh, Simon the Zealot. The only reason we know anything about Simon the Zealot is because he was a zealot, and we do know a little bit about that, but we don't actually know anything really about him. We you know he was a member of that political party, but... We would assume that much like Matthew, once he follows Jesus, Matthew stopped being a tax collector. I suspect Simon stopped being a zealot. And then of course, Judas, the son of James, Judas number one, what do you know about him? Yeah, neither does anybody else, right. Who are these guys? We don't know. And then of course, the other Judas. Him, we know more than we want to know. He's the guy that betrays, of course. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, by the way, is not the guy who wrote the epistle of James. Not that guy. The guy who wrote the epistle of James is the brother, half-brother of Jesus. Different different guy than this guy. Here's what we can put together, though. Obscurity. Just think, half of these guys, we, we know pretty much virtually nothing about them. But they are the foundation of the church. If you think you have to be Peter, if you think you have to be prominent, if you think you have to be, I don't know, some great something or another in order to be used of God, um, just look at the 12 apostles and ask yourself what you even know about any of them. But I'll tell you this, when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, the 12 foundations have their 12 names for eternity. When Jesus and the millennium rules over the world, And sets up 12 thrones. Well, James, the son of Alphaeus, is going to sit on one of those thrones. And then you can go talk to him and ask him who in the world he is and what in the world he did with his life. And we have no record of what he did with his life. But you know what? Jesus knows. And he clearly, like all the rest of them, did great things and was faithful to God even though we have no record of it. If you're following Jesus so that you can have some great name recognition and you're looking for some fabulous thing to happen to you, well, that's what Judas did. That's why Judas was there. Judas was there to make himself look good. Be careful about, a, about following Jesus because you think it's going to work out good for you. Uh, the fact is that Jesus calls these 12 guys in the midst of great controversy in the midst of the rejection of the leadership of the nation already, and he calls them to battle. So when we get called to battle, well, we're just getting the call of Christ. We're getting the same call the disciples got. We're getting called into a hot situation, one in which people hate us. Okay. Don't be surprised at that. Don't think that that's some strange thing. When we get around to in our society, and we're there, by the way, if you pop your head up and start speaking the truth of God within your society, there are people who are going to start shooting at you. And don't think that that's unusual. That has been happening since the time of Jesus. That's been happening since Jesus called these 12 guys. Don't be surprised when it happens to you. This is how it goes. The devil plays or keeps. He knows exactly how to come after us and does. And we must stay faithful. And if you're thinking that, well, somehow I'm going to be this famous, prominent person that's going to protect me or some... Uh, okay, Jesus calls nobodies. And many of them, by the time it's all done, they're still nobodies. I mean, to us, we still we don't know anything about them. But Jesus called them and they became the foundation of the church. And because we don't have a great record of their ministry, there's, it doesn't say anything in the book of Acts about what happens to half the apostles. We just, we don't know. We don't know where they went. We don't know who they ministered to. We don't know what kind of ministry they had. But we know this, they were faithful to God and faithful to the resurrection. And they were faithful to the end. And they laid the foundation upon which we still stand to this very day. Even though we know virtually nothing about most of them except their name. That's got to be us, right? We're not in this for fame. We're not in this to make a name for ourselves. We did not become Christians so that God would make us prominent. We are servants. We are here to serve God. We're here to do what he wants. And part of being a disciple of Jesus is to think like Jesus and to internalize Jesus. How did that turn out for half of the apostles? They live in obscurity. We don't know anything about them. They just serve Jesus in a nameless, descriptionless capacity. That was the plan of Jesus. Think about that. Internalize that. That is what Jesus is doing. He knew when he called them that that's how this was going to go. He called them and they stayed faithful. Yeah, they weren't Peter, they weren't Andrew, they weren't James, they weren't John. They were Simon, the son of Alpheus. They weren't anything about, it. but he was faithful. We too must be faithful. Be a disciple of Christ. Be discipled. If you don't feel like you think biblically enough. By all means, please show up to Sunday school and Sunday night and Wednesday night and small group and get together every time you possibly can because that is the plan and program of God. I'm not just trying to drum up attendance here. I'm trying to get you to think biblically. If you want to do what God wants you to do, get together with the saints when they get together. That's what God wants you to do. Do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you provide us with the privilege of the church. What a privilege it is to live in a country, a society, a place where each of us have modes of transportation and access to wonders that the world has never known prior to us and our generation. Lord, may we avail ourselves of it to further our relationship with you and each other. Lord, open our eyes to what you're doing in this world. Help us to think like you think, and to love one another as you love us. Help us, Lord, to truly be your disciples, we pray in your Son's name. Amen.